I want to thank uh, Matt and the elders to inviting me to um, preach one more time. Really appreciate that. I've been praying about it. And um, pray that God will minister to you through his word. Well, I titled this uh, message, uh, Pilgrim's Journey, referring to mine and to yours. That uh, we are pilgrims on this earth and God has a purpose for us and he has a training regimen for us. Um, so I wanted to take a look at two separate uh, um, sections of scripture. One has to do with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and the second has to do with his disciples whom he called, whom Jesus called. So we have been studying the temptations of Jesus by the devil in Matthew 4, and each time Jesus is tempted, what does he quote? Scripture, right? And he quotes twice from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is one of the great chapters in the Torah, the law, where Moses challenges a younger generation, don't do as your parents did, who rejected God for 40 years and their carcasses fell in the wilderness. I love that phrase. Um, nope. Obey the Lord with your whole heart um, and uh, take the land. So the first temptation in Matthew, as you know, Jesus was hungry. And the devil suggested that he uses God powers to satisfy his physical needs. And one of the big questions was, would Jesus live as a true human? Would he uh, would he deal with all the problems that we as humans live with? Um, would he experience hunger and thirst and tiredness? Would he have to deal with the frustrations of paying taxes? to an oppressive foreign government. Um, the family budget was already spread too thin. He was the oldest brother. Sounds to me like his father had died. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a small businessman that was paying taxes? Do you think he liked that? Um, anyway, would his patience be uh, tested when he's trying to satisfy an unreasonable customer that says, I don't like this yoke, take it back and do it again? And Jesus would say, no, he wouldn't say that. Um, you ever thought about that? Trying to satisfy an unreasonable customer. Or would Jesus be a superhero that resorts to his superpowers when he's in a pinch and things get rough? Well, Matthew 4, 4 reads this way. Quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3, Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'd like us to go back and read the entire context of Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. This is where Moses is challenging a younger generation to trust God and take the land. Their parents had all died off over the last 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. Moses reminds them why God put them through those ordeals and that God was faithful through it all. So Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5 reads. Hmm. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. 
Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which either you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then that in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So this is the context for um, the quotation by Jesus. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither your ancestor nor to teach you. So the context is you were tested to be humbled. When you look at the Israelites in the wilderness, God tested them to make them realize that they were inadequate to solve their problems. God was completely adequate, but they had to learn this thing about themselves. You can't do it. Do you think that's something we learn today? Do you think that's something that God tests us today to show us you can't do it? I don't know. You think we can make that stretch in application? So Deuteronomy was one of the, the books that Jesus most often quoted in the old, from the Old Testament, along with um, Isaiah and Psalms. So I wanted to look at some of these passages and set the stage for why. Why would Jesus quote three times from Deuteronomy in these uh, temptations by the devil? So get ready, strap on your seatbelt, because we're going to go through a series of things about that uh, Exodus generation. So Israel was redeemed as a nation. Uh, out of Egypt through the first Passover, God instructed them in Exodus 12 to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and God would pass over their firstborn, uh, but kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. This was the last straw for the Egyptians who released um, under Pharaoh, released the uh, Israelites and let them go. But while they ate the Passover, Inside their homes, the Israelites are ready to move. Exodus 12, 11 says, this, you this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So get ready. You're redeemed now. But to be redeemed is not to have a barbecue in the backyard with your friends or to put on your jammies and slippers and to settle in uh, for a movie with popcorn. It's to become a pilgrim and to get ready to move. And the people, the entire people left Egypt in a hurry. As Moses followed the Lord's explicit instructions in Exodus 14, the people found themselves trapped between the Red Sea and the approaching Egyptian army. For those of you of a certain age, uh, do you remember Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments? He's the Pharaoh. And uh, he says uh, in the movie Ten Commandments, the Hebrews God is a poor general. He leads his people right into a trap. Anybody remember that? Thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> oh, man, I was... <laughs> So why would God lead them into a trap from which there was no escape? Uh, they panicked. Actually, my version says they were terrified. And before we judge them, no one had ever seen what was about to happen. They were given a promise of deliverance. Trust the Lord. 
Trust him for what? Here's the Egyptian army. What are we going to do? We're going to die. We're going to die. You brought us out here to kill us. We know what's happening. Okay, just relax. Not a time for hysteria. We're going to die. Okay, just relax. Trust the Lord, Moses says. Um, so begins a series of tests. Do you remember what God did for them? He parted. Well, first, uh, there was this flaming like tornado come down and, and protect them from the Egyptians. And they, the Egyptian army couldn't come in and do anything to him. And then he parted the Red Sea. And then they walked through on dry land. And then what happened? The Egyptians followed him. Oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. OK, OK. Uh, trust the Lord. But we're going to die. You don't understand, Lord. OK, so what did he do after that? He brought back the waters of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army were drowned. So what do you think they could learn from that? Um, they sang a beautiful song. They worshiped together. Um, and uh, what did they learn from their experience? Would there be other tests, do you think? Why had God put them in that predicament? Okay, the next test is a chapter later in Exodus. It's different from the last test. This time, they lacked drinkable water. It was bitter water. So the Israelites are thirsty in um, Exodus 15. So they sit down and think, you know what? The Lord was faithful last time. The Lord delivered us miraculously. And uh, we can trust him. He delivered us in uh, Passover. He delivered us from the Egyptian army through the parting of the Red Sea. Why don't we just pray to the Lord and say, Lord, we don't know how you're going to do it, but we trust we're going to do it. Is that the way your Bible reads? I see a lot of people shaking their heads. OK, yeah, that isn't the way they did it. Sadly, no. Their default is to grumble against Moses. They didn't grumble against the Lord this time. Did God provide water anyway? Yes, he did. With an unbelievable promise. He says, if you trust me, I will bring none of the diseases upon you that I suffered the Egyptians with. And you think, what a deal. I trust you. No, no, that's not. And by the way, the next day they come to a place that had 12 springs of water. Hmm. I wonder if the Lord had that a part of a plan. Okay, we're not going to go through all these tests, but the next time the Israelites are tested again in Exodus uh, 16, um, and this time it's food. Again, a different test. It's not the same thing. If it was the same thing over and over again, they might catch on and think, oh, I get it, but it's not. This time it's food. Oh, I wish we could have the food that we had in Egypt. Oh my gosh, they say. There... In 16, can you move on to the next verse? The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat down by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us, keep going, out in this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. We know what you're up to, Lord. You're going to kill us all. Yeah, that's a good uh, conclusion to everything. We sat around pots of meat and ate to the full. But you, Moses and Aaron, you brought us out to the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Uh, what? 
Are they forgetting this minor thing called slavery? You remember how bad that was? Oh, we forget all that. We just know that right now, right now, it's obvious, God, that you're trying to starve us to death. Yeah, that's it. Guess what? God provided. And you know what he provided? What is it? Manna. That's what manna means. What is it? They go out the next morning and say, what is it? That's what manna means. <laughs> um, so you get the picture. Um, Numbers 14.22, don't go there, um, says, The Lord says, Israel tempted me these ten times in the wilderness. You don't tempt God. God tests you, you don't tempt him. That's the way it goes. You don't put God to the test. He decrees there that none of that generation will possess the land except Caleb and Joshua. Their carcasses will fall in the wilderness after they have wandered for 40 years. I made a list of all of these, and the list is just depressing. If you ever read the last part of Exodus and the first part of Numbers, it's like, ugh. I need to read the Gospels, to, and don't just read, try to read Numbers all by itself. It's just awful. The golden calf, water again, um, complaining again. The Lord's presence departs, and they're like, ugh. oh my gosh. Um, complaining about hardships, the Lord sends fire, and Moses prays, and the fire dies down. They complain they only have manna to eat. Uh, oh boy, we wish we had meat. And the Lord's answer is, you want meat? You want meat? I'm going to send you meat until it comes out your nostrils. Uh, Lord, really? Anyway, uh, criticism of Moses for marrying a Cushite or black woman by Aaron and Miriam. Criticism of Moses because hasn't God spoken through us as well? Hmm. Challenging Moses' leadership. Um, can't you imagine we go up to Matt and say, Matt, we don't have water to drink. Why don't you get us water, Matt? And Moses says, what? Who am I? What? Come on, Matt. Give us water. Anyway, the last time was the Israelites refused to believe that God can defeat the people in the land. And there's a total rebellion. We're going to return to Egypt. Yeah, you'll be welcome there. We're going to stone Moses and Aaron. And uh, that's where God sends, says that none of these people who have tested me these 10 times will enter the land and they will wander for 40 years. So Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happen to them as examples and are written down as a warning for us. Um, Matt Murphy, can you show me the follow me PowerPoint slide one? Sweet. So I've got the quotation. And sometimes in life, you can be an example to others, but it's an example of what not to do. So I, uh, I love despair.com. So out at the community college, when I taught there, they always had these beautiful inspirational pictures with a great thing underneath, like perseverance or endurance or, or inspiration, all those sort of things. Well, I like despair.com because uh, I put some of these in my office, like it'd have a picture of uh, McDonald's fries and it says not everybody can be an astronaut. And... Um, People would come into my office like administrators and they'd look at it. Oh, you got an inspirational. 
oh, that's bad, Gary. And they'd want me to take them down. I said, well, the kids enjoy them. They think they're funny. Well, we don't think that's good. So this is one I loved. And uh, my students thought it was funny. And I would, I would say things like, um, you know, um, you can have a purpose in life. If you haven't discovered your purpose in life, maybe this is it. Maybe you're the person that people are to look at and say, don't go that way. That's a life that you don't want to get into because they're wasting their life. Anyway, the point got across. Um, the point being that you may not like it when you find out what your purpose in life is. <laughs> anyway, administrators and other teachers would say, Gary, that's cold and cruel. I said, well, yeah, what's your point? Um, so it said it, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. So that's what the Israelites were in the wilderness. They're a great example of what not to do. Now, I don't I hope that nobody in this room is a great example of what not to do. But um, anyway, you won't see that in any other sermon uh, <laughs> in the United States. Um, so that's the context for Jesus quotation of Deuteronomy uh, 616 in the second temptation in Matthew 4, 7, which reads, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That seemed like an awful lot for background for one verse, didn't it, Matt? Okay. So Moses reminded the younger generation now older that their parents had put God to the test in uh, Exodus 17. And it was over water again. They blamed Moses again. They said that God was purposely bringing them into the desert to kill them and their children with, with thirst. That time Moses struck the rock. But that generation never learned to trust God in the midst of their trials. They never believed that God was good. God provided for them, even in the midst of their unbelief. It never clicked with them that God was testing them to prepare, prepare them for something greater that he wanted to do through them, to take the land and to give them rest. So we are all on a pilgrim's journey. Expect to be tested. Don't think it will be the same test every time. Realize that God has your best interests at heart and that he can be trusted. God has something greater that he wants to do through you, and he can't do it unless you grow through the test he has planned. Now, unlike previous times, I'm going to take a mat length of time and not mine, so I'm going to continue on. What do you think of that? Okay, so let's... Uh, Move on to um, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 9, and at some point in all the gospels, in, in, in the gospels to all of his disciples, follow me. I'd like to show a slide from the follow me PowerPoint. And these are uh, paintings of this event in the life of uh, Jesus and Matthew. So what I like about um, the painting on the upper left 
Um, I'm not sure if you can see it very well, but, but Matthew, who's sitting, is starting to get up, but he is absolutely stunned. He's shocked that Jesus would call him. I try to imagine. He's a tax collector. He's hated by his own people. A rabbi comes up to you, and the rabbi doesn't spit on you in the first place. The rabbi doesn't hate you. The rabbi says, you're one of the people I want. That's amazing. And I also like that the Roman soldier is listening in, but he's the Roman soldier would have been there to protect um, Matthew, who's collecting taxes, and he's acting like he's not listening in, but he's really listening in. I like that feature of it. Um, the lower left is from the series uh, The Chosen, and in that series, uh, Matthew is a functioning autistic person. I love that about it. And he's brilliant with numbers. And if you look at Mary... Mary understands the depth of Jesus' mercy. Very few other people do. And then Peter on the right, he has major issues. Mm -hmm. And if you've seen it, you know what those issues are. Some of them are with Matthew. Um, on the one on the right, Matthew is surprised, but not stunned. And the disciples are also surprised, and they're not wet, yet willing to accept Matthew. Um, perhaps they question Jesus' choice, especially Simon the Radical, the Zealot, who uh, the Zealots wanted to rebel against Rome and cast, cast them off. And one of the things was to kill tax collectors. So you think, oh, maybe there's going to be a little friction between those two in, uh, in the, among the disciples. So this is where um, Jesus calls Matthew. And we saw that when Matt introduced uh, the book of Matthew to us. Uh, our brother Gil says the word follow means to grab someone by the nape of the neck and yank them away. Right, Gil? Yeah. <laughs> so how did Matthew respond? He got up and followed Jesus. And then in Matthew 9, 10 through 13, As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call righteous, but sinners. I love those words. The first thing Matthew does is invite his friends. Who else is he going to have as friends except tax collectors and sinners? And then there's criticism immediately. Jesus, why do you go, go with these people? They're disreputable. We don't like them. They're betraying us to the Romans. Um, this does not meet with our approval. And so Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry. I meant to run everything by you Pharisees first. Okay, that's sarcasm. Um, no, of course Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, he says something like, um, I didn't come for you. Right? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. These people are sick. I came for them. If you don't think you're sick, I didn't come for you. 
ouch. Just admit you're sick, right? Um, so what did it mean practically to follow Jesus? Think back to what they went through. So they all went up to Jesus' cabin on the lake, and he invited them to go fishing. Yeah. No. Okay. Okay. Uh, I know. Um, come over to watch the game on the big screen and have a beer. That's what, no. Okay. So what did they do? They walked and walked with him all over Palestine. And they learned by being with him. Where did they live? To someone who wanted to follow him, Jesus said in Matthew 20, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of the man has nowhere to lay his head. So what did Jesus mean by that? He was homeless? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen in the chosen, they have like tents that they set up outside of town. Everybody ever thought of that? I'd never thought of that before. Yeah, he's got no real permanent home. They watched Jesus. They listened to his teaching. They watched him perform miracles. They saw how Jesus handled people who opposed him and people who responded to him. And where were they going? They didn't know. He knew, and he tried to tell them, but they didn't want to hear it. It wasn't an academic education, was it? Did Jesus challenge and test his disciples? Oh, yeah. Think of these things. There's a storm on the lake. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. And what do they say? Jesus, save us. We're going to die. Sound familiar? Okay. So Jesus gets up. He calms the waves and says, oh, you have little faith. Ow. Hey, I'm a disciple. I'm going to be the head of the church. Well, no, I'm not going to be head of the church, but I'm Peter. Another time, Peter gets out of the boat. What great faith. He walks to Jesus and then he falters. But, uh, oh, you have little faith. It was a storm. I was afraid. What am I supposed to do? There was a time when um, there were 72 disciples sent out two by two in Luke 10 to announce that the kingdom of heaven is near. And they returned full of joy, saying, even the devil submit to us in your name. This is cool. We've got power. We can tell the, the devils. And it's that same kind of smug arrogance that we can do it. Jesus. And Jesus says to them, a uh, little bit too arrogant, a little too smug. Just be glad your names are uh, registered in heaven. Just be glad you're saved. And then the one I love is... In Matthew 14, the disciples come up and Jesus, I don't think you're aware of this, but there's 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus women and children, and they don't have any food. Perhaps you haven't thought of how this is going to work, Jesus. Um, they need food and you need to dismiss them. Tell them to go home so they can eat. We're just trying to help Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and says, no, you feed them. <laughs> what? Yeah, you feed them. Uh, well, we got a couple bucks. And then, uh, who is it? Peter says, hey, I found a kid. And he's got five loaves and two fishes. Any case, Jesus' training regimen had a common theme. Don't trust your own abilities. Humble yourself. Trust in God. Trust Jesus in every area of your life. So, 
If we follow Jesus, do you think we will go through a similar training regimen? We're not in Palestine anymore. We're not walking the roads with him. But do you think we will be tested? Expected, right? I mentioned to the men at the men's breakfast last month that just within the last month, I have faced challenges that have taken my breath away and found myself saying a quick prayer in my pickup before I went into the hospital. Lord, help me. I don't know what to say. You should expect that kind of testing if you follow Jesus. It's not watching the big game with a beer in your hand on your big screen TV. If you're doing that, I don't think you're following Jesus. Sorry, that was unkind. I withdraw that. Before Jesus' disciples were called derisively little Christ at Antioch of Syria, uh, his followers were called the way. And we know from John 14, 3 through 5, who in response to Thomas saying, he didn't know where Jesus was going, so how could we know the way? Jesus responded, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We understand this is the only way that a person can come to God to our, for our glorious salvation is through Jesus. Beyond salvation, the disciples adopted the way for walking a path for life, for living out Jesus' truths, for becoming more like Jesus, for being more filled with the Holy Spirit. I wanted to read a couple of verses from Ephesians. Uh, the New International Version does not translate that with the word walk. They translate it as live. But Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is our walk right now, not in Palestine, but here. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then the last scripture is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you not grow weary and lose heart. At my stage in life, it's difficult to run. So I hope it's a metaphor um, that we run the race. There are many others who run the race before us. They did it, and so can we. So we set aside everything that hinders us, the stuff that weighs us down, the baggage that we're carrying, the sins that entangle us. For me, it's anger and hatred and bitterness. What is it that trips you up? Identify what it is. Set it aside. It's hindering your walk. It's hindering your life with God. The most important thing is a marathon is what? Endurance, right? It's not a 100-yard sprint. It's don't give up. Just keep plodding along in spite of setbacks, in spite of disappointments, in spite of what happens with your health. 
Don't give up. And it's not just stoic endurance. We focus on someone, on Jesus, who has completed this course. He set us an example of how to do it. He has endured the worst. He is victorious. Think about what he's done for us, for you. And don't lose heart. Jesus is no longer physically walking the dusty roads of Palestine, but he still issues the challenge to those who will hear it. Follow me. And I say yes. I ask you to follow him as well. You will never, never regret it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you still speak to us 2,000 years later, and you challenge us to follow you. And we know, Lord, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, and you will deliver us from all different kinds of types of trouble. You will be with us in the midst of that trouble. Lord, we pray that we would um, trust you in the midst of our trials. We pray that we would not be like that generation that complained and murmured um, and put you to the test. We pray that we would... Uh, that we would see that you are doing it for your purpose and we would see the ultimate purpose is so that we can know you better and rest in your arms. Lord, we thank you that you haven't given up on us and we pray we could encourage each other to trust you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.